Brexit means Brexit. The campaign was fought, the vote was held, turnout was high, and the public gave their verdict. There must be no attempts to remain inside the EU, no attempts to rejoin it through the back door, and no second referendum. The country voted to leave the European Union, and it is the duty of the government and parliament to make sure we do just that. Hello and welcome back to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Winesett and I'm joined once again by Max Frost. Hello, Max. Hey, Matt. We've got a second show for you this week because of the urgency of the topic, Brexit. Today, we've interviewed Dalibor Rohach. He's a research fellow here at AEI, where he studies European political and economic trends. He's also the author of the book, Towards an Imperfect Union, A Conservative Case for the EU. So without further ado, here's Dalibor. Dalibor, thank you for coming on Banter today. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the 30,000-foot view of Brexit. I remember being a summer intern in 2016 when this got voted on, and that summer intern at AEI, actually, and that just feels like forever ago. And it's still ongoing. It's still in the news all the time. So could you just give us a brief overview of what's been happening since the referendum and why the process is taking so long? Sure. It's not an entirely surprising thing because the process of disentangling a country from a project of regional economic and political integration is going to be complicated. I think nobody should have been under any illusion that this could have been done in a, in a couple of months or, or years. So what happened was that in, uh, in spring 2017, the UK invoked Article 50, and started the negotiation process with the European Union. Uh, Prime Minister Theresa May drew a number of red lines that effectively excluded some of the possible outcomes for those negotiations, most importantly the membership in the European single market and the umbrella of, of the EEA, European Economic Area, or, 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 or EFTA, European Free Trade Association. And, and so what that meant is it sort of reduced the scope of possible outcomes for these negotiations. And, and what she in, ended up concluding with, with, with Michel Barnier, who led these negotiations on behalf of the European Commission, was an agreement that tries to chart a middle ground, really, between uh, uh, the UK's membership in some elements of the single market and also the UK retaking control of its own laws, of its own uh, borders and immigration policy, and a number of other things that according to the judgment of the government, were very, very important uh, to voters. This is just a withdrawal agreement that mm-hmm. was agreed on. Uh, it includes a commitment to negotiating a comprehensive free trade agreement in the future. With the, uh, with the EU? With the EU, yes. This, this is not going to guide, if, if, if indeed this is implemented, which now seems quite unlikely, uh, but if, if it were implemented, it would only... Uh, so regulate the modalities of the e, of, of the UK's exit. It would not give you guidance on what the future relationship look like. That's something to be still negotiated in the future. Yeah. So can you say a bit about the British political landscape right now? Who do you have that's supporting the deal? Who do you have that's opposing it? Uh, it's quite interesting because you have these dividing lines that really cut across both of the political parties. So so it looks like Brexit is the one issue that is now destroying both the Conservative Party from within 
and the Labour Party from within. And you already had the emergence of a small uh, but growing group of MPs from both parties called the Independent Group who left, uh, many of them left the Labour Party over its problems with anti-Semitism and, and Jeremy Corbyn's just generally being an extremist, yeah. uh, but also over Labour's position on Brexit. So it is well known that Jeremy Corbyn is one of those old-school, unreformed, 1970s-style socialists who uh, were Eurosceptic already back in the 1970s because he saw the what was then the European Economic Community as a neoliberal project mm-hmm. that would impose market reforms on the UK, that would prohibit certain forms of industrial planning and, and, and so on and so forth. So, so both parties are divided about what what the future relationship between the UK and the EU should look like and whether really the UK should leave to begin with. So so it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty complicated situation that, that Theresa May is trying to navigate. Yeah, we've heard a lot over the last year and a half, two years, two and a half, how, geez, it's been a long time, about the hard Brexit versus the soft Brexit I mean, for the listeners that don't haven't been following this that closely because it's just, frankly, been a lot to keep up with, what do they mean by those terms and what is Theresa May trying to push through right now? Right. So in simple terms, uh, the difference between a soft Brexit and a hard Brexit is, is one between a departure that's sort of catered for by, by an agreement between the EU and the UK versus one where there is no agreement yeah. between the two parties. And now when it comes to the actual agreement, there is a spectrum of options from the UK staying part of the single market to a commitment to negotiating a free trade agreement in the future. And so what Theresa May negotiated was a withdrawal agreement, which sort of caters for an orderly withdrawal of the UK that that puts in place a transitory period during which a free trade agreement could be negotiated in, 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 in the coming years. And it tries to, I guess, balance the demands of the electorate for immigration restrictions imposed on, on EU migration with uh, the potential for real economic disruption if suddenly the UK were to withdraw and impose tariff barriers and, and various regulatory barriers on, on trade between between the UK and the EU. The UK ex- exports 40%, over 40% of, of, of all of its exports to the European single market. Mm-hmm. Uh, moreover, uh, 45% of UK exports are in services which overwhelmingly go to the single market. And I mean, there is even under the withdrawal agreement quite a bit of uncertainty about how services would be treated, so you know, financial services and, and those kinds of things. So, so that's something to to be sort of revisited, negotiated under the umbrella of, of the future trade agreement, if there is indeed going to be one. Yeah. So I don't know how much polling has been, on, has been done on this, but did a lot of the people who voted for Brexit uh, back in 2016 do most of them still support Brexit? I think that Brexit has become, just like Donald Trump, one of those sort of dividing lines of politics where uh, you don't really see that many people moving from one camp to another, but, but rather digging in deeper. So the interesting thing about the debate in the UK before the referendum was, was that many people on the Leave side were saying that we understand that the country is divided over this, and 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 of course we will take that into consideration should leave win in the referendum and and so the plan was to remain for the time being in the european economic area it's like if you go to 
look at what people like Daniel Hannan and many other you know, good conservatives, friends of free enterprise were saying, was they were not advocating for a abrupt sort of hard Brexit, but, yeah. but for a sort of change of direction, a, a sort of gradual series of, of steps. And, and since the referendum, what happened both on the side of the public opinion and also on, 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 on the side of sort of political conversation in Westminster is, is, is the debate became more and more extreme. And now for a growing minority still within the Tory party, nothing but the hard Brexit will really satisfy uh, the, the supposed, the imagined mandate of the referendum, which obviously something that's impalatable to, to the rest of the country. And I think that's something that makes this whole situation so difficult. Yeah. And I mean, Trump, I think, did call himself Mr. Brexit after he won because nobody expected him to win the presidency, just like people didn't yeah. expect Brexit to uh, the leave campaign to win. Why do you think it won? Because I remember, I mean, that summer, everybody seemed to treat Remain like it had it in the bag. It was never seriously going to lose. And then when Leave ended up winning, you had certain people like the Daniel Hannon wing saying, this is all about sovereignty. Britain can now become a truly free trader nation. But then you had other people saying, no, this is all about just immigration and people in Britain not liking the EU's open borders. This is not too long after the uh, Merkel opened the doors to Germany. So what do you think was motivating Brexit? And do you think the now that Leave has won, do they have a clear ver- vision of where they want this to go? So 2016 was an interesting year in, in, in Western politics. I think there were more than just one surprise uh, that, 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 that sort of was, was lurking and that, that few people saw. So coming, uh, I, I would say that the outcome of the referendum uh, was a result of three factors. First of all, there had been a latent demand for populist, anti-establishment, anti-system politics mm-hmm. because of the financial crisis, because of the refugee crisis that, that sort of swept across Europe the year before. Uh, I think those images were very vivid in the UK, although the UK itself was not really affected by the refugee flows uh, because it's an island nation. Uh, so yes, people are trying to get into the, uh, um, into the tunnel uh, across the across the English Channel, but 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 very few, very few succeeded. So there was this sort of demand for 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 populism, and there was also quite a number of ruthless demagogues who were who were catering to 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 that demand. Most notoriously, figures such as Nigel Farage, and you had Aaron Banks, and and and, and others in that camp. Um, and the third element, which I think is important. Uh, is really the miscalculation from my from my perspective on, on on the side of of many of our conservative free market minded friends in the UK who thought that uh, that populist wave could be tamed, could be somehow made more civilized, yeah. and 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 so they joined this coalition with really sort of unsavory anti-immigration voices, thinking that the reasonably reasonable people will have the upper hand in the end. Uh, that these sort of forces will be tamed and will end up with an outcome that will be more amenable to free enterprise, to constitutional self-government, and so forth. And I think that was that was a mistake, mm-hmm. because what they ended up doing was 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 to essentially amplify those 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 extreme voices and and the direction that the whole post referendum debate in the UK has 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 been going is is certainly not one that suggests that post Brexit UK will be the land of opportunity and free enterprise and and Singapore on 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 the Thames quite the contrary when you get prime minister Jeremy Corbyn 
you know the, the constraints that the EU is imposing in areas like competition policy and 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 the single market uh, I think they'll be they'll be quite sorely missed by by by, by free market minded Brits what's ne- so where do we go from here in terms of the deal's been voted down mm-hmm. two times twice yeah, yeah. They're going to get an extension, presumably, from the EU. Right. So we are recording this on the 19th of March. Um, this week, uh, Prime Minister Theresa May is supposed to go to Brussels and ask for an extension ahead of the Thursday meeting of the European Council. Uh, it is quite likely uh, that the EU will grant that extension. I think there are people in Brussels who, whose patience with the UK is, is, is running low, but I think there is enough goodwill on the EU side, especially among heads of government, uh, that they will not want to punish the UK, contrary to the conventional sort of narrative yeah. uh, among some conservatives. I don't think there is a sort of desire to to be mean or nasty to, to the UK. People understand very well that the UK is an important European power, that we need Brits working together with Europeans on, on security questions and so on. So there'll be an extension. Uh, but the question is, what will that extension really, really do? Uh, because right now there isn't a majority in the UK, either in the general public or among members of parliament, in favour of any option in particular. So the compromise agreement negotiated by Theresa May, uh, which is might be imperfect and flawed, but as, as, as all compromises are, well, that does not command majority in parliament. Uh, a no-deal outcome does not command a majority. Overturning the outcome of the referendum seems like a political non-starter. Yeah. Uh, either so, so the question is, what will they do with this extension? They can't kick the can down the road indefinitely because, as members of the European Union, if if this extension goes sort of far in, enough in the future, they would have to actually participate in the European elections scheduled for May. So it's likely that the extension that they will get is is a relatively short one, and what happens after that is is, is anybody's guess. Yeah, and so a year ago, all we heard about was hard Brexit versus soft Brexit. Now, it seems like every time I look at the news, they talk about the backstop, the yeah. Irish backstop. And I cannot figure out what that means. <laughs> so what right. is the, what's going on? And I mean, I was in Ireland a year uh, over a year ago now, and there's a lot of concern then about what will happen with the north, the mm-hmm. Borland, with Northern Ireland. So what do they mean by the backstop, and what's the, what's the problem there? Right. So under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, the UK and Ireland agreed that there'd be no hard border on in, in Ireland mm-hmm. separating Northern Ireland from 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 the Republic and the Irish being in the EU uh, have really emphasized this issue to to European negotiators who decided like not to compromise on this whatsoever so so they included into the withdrawal agreement uh, this provision um, that if there is no un- unless there is a negotiated sort of provision on what to do with the border uh, under the terms of the future free trade agreement between the UK and the EU uh, will keep the UK within the customs union so that there be no hard border uh, in Ireland obviously Nobody intends to use that backstop. It's, it's it's just a backstop. It's there, just in the unlikely case that no intelligent free trade agreement is is, is negotiated between now and and the end of the transit 
transitory period, which would which would cater for 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 this particular problem. But it's it, it you know it's, it never it was never meant to be to be used and uh, and yet for many people in in, in the UK it uh, has really become the symbol of everything that's sort of bad and evil about about uh, sort of Brussels inability to to to, to compromise and. Uh, and that's quite unfortunate because it, it's 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 a fairly trivial provision when you when you think about it. Mm-hmm. It's it's just something that's there as a as a as a as a backstop. And obviously there are a number of technical solutions you can come up with to how 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 you can avoid border checks. It, it, the backstop just reflects the recognition that that those solutions are not in place right now and and might not be in place two years from now. So so while we figure those out and agree on them. Uh, let's sort of keep that as, as an option yeah. uh, to, to make sure that the border uh, is, is, not, is, is not closed. So, so I, th- I think it has been mistakenly elevated to a, to a, to a, to a status that, that is just not in proportion to, to, to his actual salience. Yeah. Can you say a couple words about Theresa May? How secure is she in her position? That's a good question. So nominally she should be secure enough within her own party. So there was there was a vote within among Tory MPs last year, towards the end of the year, or maybe time flies. I'm not even sure when yeah. that happened, but like over the past four months, uh, that confirmed that 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 her MPs had confidence in her. So she is, I think, as, as a result of that, immune to further leadership challenges from within her party. But her government relies on on a fairly narrow majority in. Um, in the House of Commons, and it's a coalition with the Democratic Unionist Party that might become very fragile because the unionists, obviously, for them, this question of the backstop and of the territorial unity of the United Kingdom is, is a central one. So, so, so her position is is not entirely sort of stable. I mean, it, like many things can happen between between now and and. You know, the end of this month for them. Yeah, I remember you wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. I have, time flies, maybe a year ago now, where you said that Theresa May is maybe not a. I don't know if you said she's a great prime minister, but at least an underrated one. And you were yep. kind of singing her praises. Do you still feel that way? To some extent, yes. I mean, she was handed uh, a brief that was extremely difficult. So she obviously campaigned for Remain, ascended to leadership, essentially because. The Brexiteers did not want to deliver what they what they what they promised, and and so she embarked on these negotiations in which, I mean, she was really negotiating with the rest of the Tory party as much as she was with with with, with Brussels about how these different sort of demands that were embodied in 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 the Brexit uh, vote could be reconciled. So how you can, you know, leave the EU and still keep many of the benefits. How you can. Uh, retake control of immigration and still be sort of part of the single market for goods. I mean, some, something that Brussels was saying from the outset that was just not possible, and there are real trade-offs there. But what she managed to do, uh, I think, defied all the expectations in terms of fudging this compromise uh, that's unsatisfying and, and, and flawed. But it's a compromise, and it's there, and Brussels agreed to it, and, and the UK agreed to it initially. And, and the question is, like you know, how, how how far can can those compromises go? And and I think we are in in the midst of an inter- interesting experiment. Whether these sort of populist sentiments, those that drove the UK to to vote the way 
it did in 2016, whether they can be tamed and made sort of civilized or, or whether they are going to drive the country to the to the extreme. And I think she has made a valiant effort to sort of tame and moderate those 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 those, those, those sentiments. And I'm certainly uh, I, I, th- I think she she is very much underrated in in, in that respect and, and very much deserving of of, of of respect. Yeah. Who does she still have to convince about? So if I understand it correctly, there's the hard Brexit tears uh, led led by Jacob Rees-Mogg, I think, who, yeah. they don't want to vote for it. There's also a big portion of the Labour Party that doesn't want to vote for her deal. And then, I don't know where her allies, the Democratic Unionists, is DUP, wherever they mm-hmm. stand. Who is she still trying to go for? Like, who could she possibly get to come over to her side to support, I think now we're in the third meaningful vote, to pass her version of, of Brexit? So we'll see if the third vote if it actually can even takes happen. place. Yeah. But part of the strategy, I think, is to, is to like, let, let the clock tick until we are so close to to exit that some people in the Labour Party will be scared about a hard Brexit and might come to her side. And also people uh, in the European Research Group, which is the sort of faction of Tories led by Jacob Rees-Mogg, would be potentially afraid of of, 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 of Brexit never happening at all, that they would rather support her deal. And I think there are some voices from those quarters suggesting that that might, that might actually happen. So, so, so those two constituencies uh, are potentially there. On the Labour side, part of the problem is that the Labour Party has become a really cult of personality built around Jeremy Corbyn and, 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 and he's been very sort of thorough in imposing discipline on 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 his MP, so so I think many of these people who uh, just want this want 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 the UK to to get it over with are just sort of scared to 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 vote with with the government on these on these on these on these issues. So something obviously that people are talking a lot about now is the second referendum. And uh, what are your thoughts on that in terms of your your own opinions, and also in terms of how likely is that to actually happen? Yeah, I, I'm not sure I would make bets. Hmm. And and sort of assess the likelihood, it it can happen. Uh, it's sort of difficult to assign probabilities in in this environment. In terms of my own opinion about whether it's desirable or not, I have to say, you know, I, I, to the extent to which I'm allowed to have an opinion about the choices of British voters, I never really saw the upside in Brexit, and so I hoped that the British would end up voting Remain in 2016. With the referendum going the way it did, it is not my instinct to try to overturn that result. And it, it, it does not offend me that the country wants to renegotiate its place in Europe and its future relationship with the EU. I think it's it's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. And, and so people voted. Uh, there isn't a strong sign that that, that majority has, has changed. It's not, a, it's not an overwhelming majority, but it's still there. And the politics of holding another referendum and letting people vote until they get it right, I think has the potential of becoming really toxic. Yeah. Uh, so so my inclination would be against that. So if they voted to leave, then let's try to find a reasonable arrangement. And I think the deal she negotiated is such a reasonable arrangement. You might, you know, criticize it on various grounds, but but it, but it, but it's there, and it's that does not destroy the British economy and does not destroy the EU. So I would say let's go for that instead of having a second referendum. That said, in the situation of extreme political uncertainty and of like no majority being in favor of of anything in particular, 
it's quite possible and and maybe it's it's maybe I'll be forced to change my my sort of beliefs about about like holding the second referendum maybe that's the best thing that might might end up happening going back to the people and asking them what they what they what they whether they really still want to do this yeah it seems like there's really no good options and just I don't follow this nearly as closely as you do obviously but just the voices I hear on the internet it seems like there's a lot of concern among the more conservative wing that Whenever the EU loses an election, they just force the people to hold another referendum until they get the outcome that they that they that they want. They, I think this has happened in the Netherlands. This might be just skewed coming from certain voices that don't like the EU. But is that has that happened in the past before, where there's just, they just kind of make the populists keep voting until the EU gets what they want? Well, it happens in some situations. Uh, most notably, it happened with the ratification of the Lisbon Treaty in Ireland. But I still think it's it's little blown off the proportion, especially in the British context, where holding a referendum about a highly complex, multifaceted question and expecting a clear yes or no answer, that was not the initiative of Brussels. It was something that was sort of homegrown and that sort of lack of domestic leadership allowed it to sort of grow and 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 over time to consume the entire political debate in the country that's that's not really brussels fault and, and i don't think there is a constituency right now in european institutions that would try to force the uk to stay i think i think people are pretty open minded when you, when you when you go to brussels and talk to people like the it is the british choice let them do whatever whatever they want if they can figure out what 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 those options are my 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 big concern with the uk though is is that this this brexit debate has really displaced everything else in 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 the policy conversation domestically and internationally and and you know anybody who has followed world affairs sort of events in the world over the past couple of years knows that the world has not come to a standstill until the British and Brussels can figure out what sort of relationship they want to have. Uh, there are you know, many strategic challenges that are just growing and growing in importance, whether it's China or, or Russian influence in Eastern Europe. And, and, and so normally we would like to have the Brits sort of focused and working together with Americans and Europeans on these challenges, but they are unfortunately... Uh, Sort of steeped and marinated in this, in this, in this rather introspective exercise about the future relationship with the with the EU, and I think the same holds true for 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 domestic policies in the UK. So, so when you think about the biggest obstacles to economic growth in Britain, those don't have to do necessarily with EU overregulation or or like directives from Brussels or common agricultural policy. Those are typically self-inflicted things like very restrictive land use regulations or uh, or a secondary education system that, that's not performing very well. And so normally you would like to have a conservative government that is trying to free up market forces, that's trying to, to spur growth. And, and and all of that has been completely suffocated by by this this focus on 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 Brexit. So so really, like we are in the ninth year of of, of sort of successive conservative governments, and there isn't that much to to show for it in terms of structural reforms, in terms of liberating the productive forces in in the British economy. And I think that's that that that's a pity. And I think history will ultimately judge our free market conservative friends in the UK quite harshly for that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that on that gloomy note, we're probably just about out of time, right? We let's have time for one more. Okay, I think so. As a uh, 
as an Anglophile, how should how should us Anglophiles in America be thinking about this? I mean, I, I Googled for like 20 minutes a day. I can't remember where I saw this quote, but I think one of the leaders said that England is a leader of nations or it is nothing at all. And people are worried now that England might be just in perpetual decline and they might not never kind of reclaim that. Obviously, they'll never be the world-spanning empire they once were, but is England in irreversible decline now? Look, Europe as a whole is in relative decline, economically speaking, in comparison to the rising powers of of Asia. When you look at the sort of amount of innovation that's taking place in Europe and in the UK, I mean, it's shrinking in relative terms in comparison to what's happening in in the rest of the world. So so that balance of power is changing. It's changing away from from Europe and, 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 and the UK. I think the strength of the UK was was really in serving as a bridge between the United States and Europe. It's an English-speaking country, very much attuned to sort of American cultural mindset. At the same time, it exercises a lot of leverage in Europe right now. It's, you know, it's the third most influential country in the European Council, holding 12.7% of the vote. It's been very successful historically in sort of getting its agenda on the table in sort of shaping European matters. And and I think by withdrawing from from the EU and, and whatever ends up being agreed on and, and and voted on, whatever the future relationship looks like, that British voice in Brussels will be missed, and and I don't think the continent will be better off as a result. And in the end, I don't think the UK will be better off as a result because it will just lose influence on its most immediate uh, on its most immediate neighbours. Well. On that gloomy note, I think we're just about out of time. So, Dalibor, thank you so much for coming out. Thank you. This was good fun. Thank you. Thank you, Dalibor, and thank you to all of our listeners. As always, if you have not already, please subscribe on the podcast app, Stitcher, or wherever else podcasts are found. And give us five stars and leave us a wonderful review. So, Matt, what did you think of the conversation? Yeah, you know, I thought I really enjoyed it. I love talking to Dalibor. Seems like there's a lot a lot of uncertainty in the UK. And speaking of uncertainty, today is the official start of March Madness, and there's a lot of uncertainty in this tournament. Who do you have? For me, there's no uncertainty. UVA going all the way this year. We should come six years in a row, but this, this year <laughs> is our year. This time is different. We should clarify we, we're both UVA basketball fans. Uh, heartbroken at that. I have no such faith in us. I think we're going to We'll be lucky to make it to the Final Four. We're going to choke somehow versus Wisconsin or something. And then even if we make it, Kentucky or someone's going to beat us. We'll see. I think Kentucky, Kentucky I'd, rather, I'd rather play UNC than Kentucky. Kentucky's a good team. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is this team, solid, best team we've had, I mean, since we got good in 20. No, we were better 15. the year when we lost to Syracuse, I think, 2016. Oh, no. We got a solid team we right Justin now. Justin Anderson. I know, but now we got DeAndre Hunter. Who you got, Duke? Yeah, I mean, I hate picking them, but... Uh, well, I hate everybody on that side. I hate I hate Michigan State, I hate Florida State, Virginia Tech, I hate Syracuse, I hate Virginia Tech. <laughs> Very bitter man. <laughs> I like Michigan. I'd like a UVA Michigan final. Go blue. <laughs> this is not gonna happen. I'll give you a hundred dollars if that happens. I'm ha- I have I've got to my final four. Why not? Michigan? Yeah. I think Michigan's terrible. Who's gonna Who's gonna come out? Syracuse. They're That's nice. my prediction. They're They're an eight seed. <laughs> I don't know. I think Florida State's really good. I haven't watched Buffalo, but everything I've read has said Buffalo is a good team. Well, I can't you, believe that that's you're from Buffalo. So you say <laughs> near, that. Nearby, um, I don't know. In that bracket, I think I'd have to go with either Syracuse or Florida State. Probably so Florida State more likely. What's, I mean, we have a lot of enemies on this on this podcast, but also for UVA basketball. <laughs> what is the worst case scenario? Uh, winning Tech, Duke, Michigan State, Syracuse. 
I mean, you got to have a love-hate thing with Duke right now. You've got Zion Williamson, arguably the greatest player ever in college basketball. That may be a stretch, but I mean, I don't know the last Kevin time. Durant, maybe. Yeah. And as much as Duke makes my blood boil and I hate them, <laughs> the, uh, you know, watching Zion win, he deserved a championship alone. Not to mention there are other great players there, but I don't know. How about, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I'd, Tech would be the worst case scenario by far for me. That, family there never hear the end of it they already they're already better than football basketball is the one thing we have so i'll give you also a hundred dollars of tech <laughs> if, if tech wins an ncaa basketball championship i'll give you a thousand dollars i will hold you to that and now i kind of want them to and yeah with that with that we hope everybody has a wonderful march yeah march. if you for some reason listen this far thank you and uh take it to the bank uva duke final uva going out victorious you heard it here first you